You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm David Frizzell, and in this episode, we're going to talk about workplace relationships. How healthy are they in general? Are we good at developing relationships at work? Or are the stats on this scary, ugly, and worrying? Hint, it's the latter. We are so bad at developing relationships at work, that place we spend almost a third of our life, that it's hurting productivity, sure. It's hurting the business bottom line, sure, important. But worst of all, it's hurting us, our mental health, our actual real-life happiness. What a terrible state of affairs, the fact that we are, on the whole, so bad at this skill that it's making us sad, disengaged, and bad at our job. The good news is that it's not hard to fix, and it doesn't cost a thing. Creating psychological safety is a passion for my guest, and he joined me to tell us all about it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jason Troy. Jason Troy, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks for having me on the show and speaking to your fantastic tribe. Yeah, my pleasure, mate. Looking forward to our conversation because you're talking about something that is relevant to everyone all day, every day, and, and that is our relationships in the workplace. We, we know they're important intuitively, but we also know that when things get busy, and, uh, and we're always busy, and I've done episodes on how busy we are all the time. We know that when things get busy, it's our personal relationships that we put on the back burner. They're one of the first things that we, we compromise when we're under the pump, when, when our email inbox is full and we've got meeting after meeting and we've got deliverables. We put those relationships on the back burner. So how bad is disengagement in the workplace, in the, in the modern workplace in the Western world? Right. Well, right now the stats are, and you can look up Gallup does a poll on employee engagement and 70% of U.S. workers are disengaged and that's, you know, 89% globally. And the number in the U.S. is $550 billion. I don't think they have a global number because it's hard to get data from a lot of different places, but it's massive, right? And, and disengaged workers basically think of a zombie. Yeah. That's essentially what it is. People don't care. They're not plugged in. They're not motivated to do their best. They're thinking about finding another job, right? There's 50,000 reasons, but they're not operating at their maximum level. And that means they're not performing where they could be. They're not innovating. And, you know, the other stat that sort of, you know, then leads to that is 75% of people quit because of their manager, right? And Mm -hmm. then you have all this sorts of other issues, right? Trust is at an all-time low in the workplace. You know, innovation levels are super low. Collaboration is 86% of executives say collaboration isn't working. 70% of teams are dysfunctional as a whole, you know, and then people leave, right? And the problem with that is, is everyone leaves. It costs either 100 to 300% to replace that person. And the other stat I saw is like only 20% of senior managers are actually 
excited about their job and their position. So when you add up all that and tons of other stats, it's at an epidemic proportion and no one's really doing anything about it and it's getting worse. And organizations, whatever they're doing, they're not doing the right things. And uh, the problem is actually way more simpler to solve and essentially free, which is even more scary. And they're not even like tackling it in any possible way. Because I've talked to most of people in Fortune and Forbes top 10 workplaces for 2017. And, you know, their people are just really disenfranchised, disengaged, and there's really nothing going on in terms of team building except some odd exercises or things that really aren't making the problems any better, right? They're actually just getting worse. When I hear that stat, that 70% number of the people disengaged, it blows my mind. I've, I've heard it a number of times. It, it just it boggles my mind. I, I don't have that experience. I, I don't anecdotally look around the workplaces that I'm involved in and see 70% of people who are disengaged. But I guess the stats have to hold up. And by the way, we in Australia, we always just assume that our stats are pretty similar to the US. We we get a lot of stats that come out of the US and say, oh, we're probably about the same. And and I guess it's the same for this. I mean, we might not be 70% disengaged, but we'll be around the same kind of area. Our cultures are, are so aligned and our workplaces are so similar. You know, anecdotally, when you're getting around as a consultant and an advisor, do you feel that 70% of people in workplaces are effectively checked out? There's zombies as far as the organization is concerned. Is, is that your experience? Yeah, because the, the other part of it that you're not thinking about is that, I'll give you an example. So let's say I had a client who was a CTO, right? She's a woman. She was going through a lot of marital issues. So I asked her on a scale of one to 10, like, where's your engagement? And she told me a six, right? Yeah. And I would say to someone that, you know, no one's going to be at a 10, but people are around eight or nine realistically, right? All the time. So that's a significantly low number. So if you're having personal problems, then you're at a much lower number. Right. And here's the other stats out there too. 40% of the population is lonely. And that means they feel alone. And that problem happens today, and that's a global issue, right? And UK said it's like the biggest health epidemic problem that they have today is loneliness. And they've equated it with food, shelter, and water. Yeah, It's a fundamental problem. It's basically, you will die, right? They've also, a researcher at the University of Chicago has correlated the stat that every day you feel lonely. It's the equivalency of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I've heard that before. That is an amazing stat. It's not made up, right? So that's, and so what happens today is it's not work-life separation. It's not work-life integration. But what happens is it's work and life are all in the same. And if you look at other stats and you say, well, I don't know if that's true. Well, they did research back in 1980 and they asked people, you know, how many go-to people do you have? People that you can confide in anything, share anything. And the average was about two to three people. They did it in 2015 and it's down to zero to one, right? So with social media, our social communication and emotional skill sets have all gotten significantly worse. And they, they've done all that testing and research and it's, you know, part of it's social media and technology, but there are other reasons as well. So all of this stuff combined together, right? You can pull as anecdotal and all these different research and you can find a pattern. And the pattern is, is that people are just not showing up at work. 
and they're not putting their full serve self into it. And it's causing productivity issues. And when I go in and sit on teams, because I've sat in probably 60, 70 teams now and watch them, what I'm finding is that only the top teams are people that are performing probably close to their maximum. And probably 99% of teams are underperforming and not innovating at the levels that they should be because they're not engaged and that people don't like each other and liking mean respecting and valuing other people's opinions. So then they just don't care and they just check out, right? At some level or another, collectively as a group. And then that effectively kills the bottom line and it hurts them, right? So there's another question I always ask people now is that if you see a company's making a billion dollars, right? Or you see a billionaire and you're like, wow, that person's super successful. The question you should ask them and they need to have an answer or they really don't know what's going on is you should ask them, why didn't you make $5 billion? Why didn't you make 10 Did you really not leave any money on the table? Are you telling me your team was operating 100% efficiency? Mm-hmm. There's no one who can say that, yeah. right? So we just don't because we feel that we're inadequate, right? So it's the same thing with this whole you know, relationships and teams. Um, we don't ask the question because one, we don't know the answer and we're overwhelmed with how do we create all this stuff? How do I make it real and actually get people to like each other, care about each other, and you know, act accordingly? And, and we'll, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll talk about how on a practical level we get people to like and care, like each other and care about each other in the workplace and why that's important. But I want to pick up something that you talked about there. It's a bit of a double-edged sword. You spoke about productivity and effectiveness in the workplace on, you know, uh, underperforming because we're lonely, we're unhappy, trust is low, collaboration is low, we're disengaged. But it's more than that as well. It's human beings spending eight, nine, 10 hours of five of their seven days in a week in that environment where they're feeling all those things. So sure, the bottom line matters because that's why we go to work and that's why we have businesses to make money and support our families. But we're also talking about the human cost as well. And I've heard you speak before, and I know that's very much front of mind for you. It's not just about the bottom line and productivity. It's about the fact that these are human beings who are experiencing that. And for everyone who is listening to this, and they just heard you go through that list of sad numbers, 40% of people feeling alone, people on average having zero to one person in this world that they feel as though they can confide in the trust and collaboration at an all-time low, it's mind-boggling that we're getting to that. And it, and it comes back, again, we've done a number of podcasts on it here in the Team Guru podcast, this the great paradox of the modern world, the fact that we have never been more connected and at the same time, we have never been more alone. It's, it is amazing. We all know it. We see it. We know it anecdotally from experience. We know it objectively through through statistics that we get. It is crazy, and and you do wonder. I wonder where it, it's all heading. But let's focus the conversation now, though, because there's just so much to talk about in here. Let's focus the conversations on personal relationships with all of that we've talked about. That sad context that you've set so nicely. How important are our personal relationships with the people we work with, those who share our cubicle or our floor or our workplace? How important are those relationships in everything that we're talking about? So 
I'll give you a few things to think about, right? So one, when you just think about neuroscience, right? How you actually in, in, interact with people in your company and people you work around, the people that you like, right? The people you get along with, the people that you care about, unconsciously in your head, when you're around those people, you give off signals to them that you care and are engaged and want to listen, collaborate, communicate, all those positive things. Mm -hmm. And what happens when you do that, oxytocin is released in both of you, right? Which is the chemical that makes us feel good and operate at a higher level. When you are not around people or people that don't are maybe neutral, right? That you just don't have a feeling either way or dislike or even hate, what happens is that's not there. So immediately what happens is you recoil and you close yourself off and aren't sharing, aren't showing up, aren't putting out your best ideas. So that affects your relationship. And the other person sees this, and then the situation actually either stays the same or gets worse. And you think about trust, too. Trust moves forward by people being vulnerable because that's how you get to know people, right? Because that's the people in your personal life, right? So the more vulnerable you are and you start sharing, you build trust. Most people think it's the opposite. You gotta trust people and then you're vulnerable, right? Well, that doesn't really, that doesn't help you at work because you're not then sharing who you are and showing up. You're just showing them this workplace, right? And then that makes it so no one cares about you. They don't care about your personal life. They don't wanna support you through troubling times and difficulties, right? So who cares if your company has a purpose, right? It doesn't matter because you're not caring about the people. When I ask people all the time, why, why do you love working at the company? Someone may say purpose. It doesn't come up as much leading. But if I ask it saying, okay, well, what happens if you didn't like the people you're working with? I'll say I quit, right? The purpose didn't mean anything. So essentially, it's the relationships. And when you look at trust, right, why does that matter? Well, the paradigms of trust are caring, reliability, sincerity, and competency. And you think about it this way. Everyone's had someone that's not sincere, reliable, or maybe that competent. But if they cared about you, you would care about them and you would let the rest of them go. That's why caring is the most important factor for trust, right? So that's why why this is so important to show up at work and actually be vulnerable, share things with people and get to know each other on a much deeper level. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. So why are we so bad at it? Why don't we do that? If if all of these things are so important, are we bad at sharing ourselves at work and developing those relationships? Are we bad because is it a function of the traditional workplace or is it a symptom of our ruggedly individual society? think probably a lot of those, but also I think the problem is the leaders and managers aren't doing it. And they're making it so people who do do that get ostracized, right? And so- Yeah, that's an interesting point. Is it the person that does get around the place engaging with people, building relationships with it, which of course pays off, you know, the outcomes, the outputs at work are improved enormously by those relationships. But visually, they're walking around, smoozing, having conversations, having a laugh, do they, does our traditional workplace say that person is not putting in? They're not sitting at their desk quietly doing their work. Therefore, they're a bad employee. Is, is that 
Surely not. Surely we just, we don't still have that stigma. Probably not that, but the problem is you don't see leaders doing it and they don't prioritize it. So most people don't think it's possible. And everyone talks about this work-life separation, right? And people make mm. you believe that that is what you should be doing. There's no conversation about the opposite, right? And you don't see leaders doing it either, right? So I'll give you a great example. So I have most of the people that I work with, and in general, not even the people I don't work with, like my friends. I ask them, how many times do you walk around the office and just ask people how things are going, like personally, not about work? Never, right? Yeah. So when I ask leaders and I have them do it for 15 minutes, two to three times a week for a month, just as an experiment, they always tell me the same thing after 30 days. People are coming up to me and giving me information that is really important that I never got before and I'm missing. Because we have a relationship. Right. And they can, right? And they don't even know that it's not happening, right? The energy is going up. People are happier because people see that you're doing that. And when people go around and talk to other people, it signals to them that they care. And then if you're an employee, what do you do? You mimic that. And also you care about the company and the outcomes and what's going on, right? But People don't do that and they don't think about it like that way because they want to look at everything like a balance sheet and it's some mathematical analytical equation that you learn when you get your MBA from Harvard, but it's exactly the opposite. And so, but people won't do that. And also here's the other thing, right? Just think about this. If you were on a team of people that you liked, meaning valued respect, not necessarily being friends or doing things socially, think about how you communicate. You communicate much better because you do it in your personal life with people you care about. You collaborate, you resolve conflicts, right? You'd be willing to share much more. Well, that means you're much more efficient, you're much more productive, you're much more innovative, and it's a lot more fun. And you care about other people and people care about your success too, right? So actually you work less and you're way more productive because the team functions as a whole not as a bunch of individuals running around worried about what's going on. So effectively, we would be better off if people were friends at work, people were making friends because the dynam dynamics of their relationship, yeah. Right, so I think a lot of the times it's like, if you knew, you know, Brene Brown, one of my favorite authors said a great thing in her last book is that it's hard to hate people up close. And I think the thing about it is, is that a lot of things that happen when people hate each other, they just don't know each other, right? And when you start to get to know each other, you now appreciate the individual and the person. You might not necessarily agree with them. You might not necessarily get along all the time, but if you appreciate them and value them, you operate significantly different in your engagements and interactions with people. And you're willing to do a lot more things differently, right? And you're maximizing your skill sets where you're, you're hitting basically essentially your ceiling. So the people that do it are essentially doing all this training for free because they're already there because they care about what's going on around them. And it's just that teams and organizations don't think like this because they believe it's a mathematical equation or that people are just performers or they're naturally smart or they're just born this way. And it's all not true. And actually the research out there when you dig actually says the opposite. The problem is HR people are also just to blame. Like when you look at when a new employee comes to an organization, because I've asked to see the checklist with people, you will see buried in point number 20 in a subsection one part A 
getting to know other people. Yeah. Yeah. But the reality is if you walk around a place, I've never had a client complain to me or anyone I've ever spoken to that the onboarding process was crappy, but I have had them complain that they don't like the people or their managers are horrible. So it's a people problem and people need to spend a significant amount of time helping people build these relationships, facilitating them and doing it on a regular basis. And again, it's all free and people will just work better. So you're make you make the time back anyways. In, in a minute, I'm going to ask you just to give us your, your top three or five or whatever it might be, things that we can do as leaders in a workplace to try and turn this around, turn it around for ourselves and turn it around for the people around us. What are your top tips? But before we get there, I, I want to kind of uh, you know make a comment firstly that you can – it's so easy for leaders to go into that shell and start caring about things that they can control, things that they can touch, those tangible, objective, KPI-type things because they're safe. I know what they are, whereas the stuff that you're talking about is very subjective. It's it's relationship. It's soft and fluffy, and you know it, it has a tangible impact, of course, but you can't measure it as easily as you can measure the number of units produced. You can't measure it as easily as you can measure so many things that we have on our KPIs. So I guess when leaders are feeling under pressure, when they're feeling as though maybe they, you know, they're not performing very well or their team is not performing very well, you can almost forgive them for regressing into those objective tangibles. The problem is the situation then gets worse. Yeah, of right? course. So actually, their numbers get actually worse. And instead of seeking out the answer and actually putting, making themselves more uncomfortable, then that doesn't work, right? An easy example is we're doing this podcast today, right? And you emailed me and said, hey, I'm really busy doing stuff. Can you possibly do this? And I'm like, oh, you're being vulnerable. And like, I would want to help you as if someone would help me if I'm really busy. So that's where we're doing this thing now, right? So I didn't even think about, well, you know, I'll just move something else around because it's pretty simple. Well, just think of that, right? So that helps our relationship right here, you and me. But it's the same thing as somewhere at work and that's what they did. Right. Just think what the other person would feel in the effect. And I think leaders need to think more like, how would I be treating people in my personal life that I cared about? And what would I do and translate it in the workplace? And all this stuff would get magically better because the answers are all there and they're all mainly intuitive. It's not like it costs something to care about people. It really doesn't. It actually takes you being engaged, you asking questions, you listening, right? Yeah, you, you know, you're right about that. So that email I sent you, there, there was an element of vulnerability there. I, I kind of asked you a favor. I was like, hey, th th my schedule's changed. Can we do this? And you were like, yeah, no worries. But isn't that how people are? And if that is how people are, because that just comes so naturally. I mean, how else, I mean, how else would you communicate if you want to get anything done with people? So I, I'm, I'm just wondering here, is it, you know, if so many people are not like that at work, does that mean that that's how they are outside of work as well? Are they really cold, disengaged, bad at relationships outside of the workplace as well? Or do they, do they bring this mask with them once they, once they swipe into the lift in the morning? I think it's worse when it's at work because their people are programmed into thinking that we need to bring our work self, not our whole self. Mm. Right. That's the problem, right? Because when you go home, and you're out with your friends or your family, then that doesn't, you don't say, well, we'll leave behind how I operate at work with them. No one says that, right? So you operate as your whole self wherever you're at, right? Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, your flaws and other things in all of us are going to come out, but we're not operating at like 50%. That's the difference. So I think that's a stark difference in how people operate with each other. Hang on. Hang on. I missed that. I, I think that's an important point. So we're trying to get to, I'm trying to get to the bottom of whether people are this cold and disengaged in their personal life. And you were saying, no, they, they kind of bring it. They, they think they have to, they have to divide themselves between work self and personal self, which is obviously a mistake, but they have that thought. So you're saying they bring about 50% of their personality into the workplace. Is that where you landed on that? Yeah, because I think you're not bringing your personal life and sharing things with people. And the only, only time that that happens are teams that are performing really high or when there are pockets in an organization where you share with what's, you know, what's going on with certain people or groups. It's not, you don't do it though with everyone. Yeah. And that's the problem. That's actually, I've got two more questions before I get to your list of things like, you know, I can do to, to change my workplace. Firstly, it's, it's this question around, so, you know, everything you say is make, makes sense about the, the quality of our relationships at work improves trust and collaboration and all those great things. It makes me want to be there. The time I spend there is more enjoyable, all that kind of stuff. But what we're, what we're asking people to do, we're asking ourselves to do is to strike up a personal relationship with people who I wouldn't otherwise know. These are people who I'm with and I know just because of work. I wouldn't choose necessarily to hang out with them on the weekend. They, they're not in my circle of friends. They may not even be the type of people I choose as friends, but we're suggesting here that we strike up a personal relationship with people we might not otherwise choose to do so. Yes. I mean, that, that is essentially it. And you really don't have a choice if you want to be successful or do you want your team or organization because the opposite isn't working. So there isn't like, you can't say, well, I don't like that person. I don't care. Right. Well, you know what? That negatively affects what's going on because now you're angry and mad. Yeah. Right. That's not helping and other people see that. And that's not good for you. Right. Or you don't give them feedback. You don't engage with them. Well, who does that hurt? That hurts you, too. It doesn't just hurt the other person. Right. So that's what this comes down to. The successful people understand what we're talking about and they do the opposite in spite of what's going on and in spite of that fact. And that's why I said I don't think you need to be friends with everyone at work, but if your mindset is more, I want to value and like them and respect them and get to know them and understand their viewpoint and be more empathetic, you will do significantly better because you'll listen to them. They'll feel heard. They'll feel valued. I mean, and all that stuff is in your personal self-interest as well as the organization's success. You know, when I, when I think about any of the community or social activities that I involve myself in, you head along to those activities with a mindset of whoever I meet, I will almost treat as a friend straight away. And we will, we will build on that relationship. For example, I love to swim, Jason. So I go along to a swim squad and I go to events and I meet lots of people through that. And everyone that I meet through that almost becomes a friend. Some are closer friends than others. Some are more distant friends, but they're all positive relationships because that's what you take. That's the mindset everyone takes to that environment. So I guess the workplace is no different because when I go and meet people at swimming, I'm not choosing their personality. I'm meeting them and becoming a friend with them because they're turning up at swimming like I am. So it's the same as work, I guess. I mean, I'm no more choosing 
their personality at swimming as I would be at work. So I guess the difference is we don't have that mindset at work. I go along to community events, almost my default setting is I'll make friends with whoever I talk to, but we don't tend to do that at work. We don't, right? And that happens all the time. And and either one is a story you're making up because it's not one plus one equals two. It's not a factual thing. So you might as well go with a story that's going to positively impact your career and your team and the success of the place that you're working at, right? I mean, because the default, if you go the other way, which is happening now, is not good, right? And so you have to start thinking differently about this process. And I think you know, the, the one thing I'll tell you is from the research is I was looking around and I came across, you know, a couple of things that were interesting to me. I kept coming across anecdotal evidence of teams beating other people with against Herculean odds, right? I was reading the story about the Harvard debate team taking on a bunch of prisoners in a debate and the prisoners only had books. They didn't have access to the internet back in 2015 and the prisoners crushed them right? In this debate, right? How would that happen? The team, right? And I found instances, right? And then I found this study by Google, which really started to change everything. And then I dug more into it and found out that this is really the secret, right? The problem in companies today, and it's the same thing that you do in very close relationships that you have, is they have a foundation of psychological safety, And what Google found was they were trying to build the, from 2012 to 2014, people can literally Google this. There's a thing called Project Aristotle. And they were trying to find at Google, how do we build the perfect team? Like, what are the characteristics of the people, their background? Because we're basically just going to hire these people and that is going to be our entire process. Well, what they found was something that shocked everyone. They looked at 180 teams, 250 pieces of data and interviewed 200 plus people. And they found that people who were performing really high didn't matter. People who graduated from Ivy League or the best schools didn't matter. People's backgrounds didn't matter. It was people who had psychological safety. Right. That was the ultimate, that was the only factor. And all the top performing teams did And in the absence of psychological safety, the other four factors they found were never present, never present, right? So that's the key. And on the teams that had psychological safety at Google, they found evidence 19, they've sold 19% more revenue. They were recommended and get lauded by executives twice as often. And there's some other things, right? And psychological safety is a fancy word for vulnerability, sharing, and caring. Right. It's the ability for psychological safety. Yeah. It's the ability for to take risks. Right. So if you want to boil it down even farther, it's you know people on a deep personal level, right? Deep personal level, not shallow. You feel free to raise crazy ideas in the group, right? And it's okay. And you can ask any question you want without fear of reprisal or people making fun of you which then helps clarify situations so you don't make mistakes and you clearly communicate. And when I look at one instance, like brainstorming, right? So if you take a look at teams that are at the top, everyone talks in literally the same increments. Someone may be a little bit more, but literally you'll hear from everyone on the team one way or another. So what happens is you tap into everyone's zone of genius, right? 
And then leaders can cherry pick things and then pick it out and like baking a cake. They have all these ingredients that they're going to make a great cake. Well, the problem is in the other teams, you'll have three or four people speaking. The rest of them won't. People will be fearful of sharing an idea because, heck, if you shared a bad idea, people make fun of you. And then you're going to look bad and that's going to be permanent on your permanent record. Yeah. So then they take with like two or three ingredients, which means you're not going to really have many options and it won't be very good. Right. So like that's just one example, but that's what Google end up finding. And they've done all these studies where if you put medium performing people on a team that's psychologically safe versus another team of all star people, they almost always beat them. Wow. Right. doesn't matter. They've been research study Google. I mean, there's tons of research out there on this. It's not I'm MIT, Cornell, Stanford, all, there's all like Harvard. Everyone's out there has got the same research. It's just people don't realize it's psychological safety. In the absence of that, you will not have the highest performing team. And there isn't it. You're not going to do it. Right. Maybe there's some aberration somewhere that won't continue. You might have it momentarily, but there's no way. And here's the problem. I took a, two people off a medium performing sales team and I put them on the highest performing team for 90 days. They finished with 20% higher revenue with no additional training, just being on the team, right? And the salesperson, I mean, the leader didn't believe me. He's like, Jason, I, you know, let's try this. I don't, maybe it'll work a little bit. When they saw the numbers, they're like, there must be something I don't get. And I'm like, yeah, you don't have psychological safety. And you think that these people are not good salespeople when the reality is, is there may be some truth to that, but they can be way better than they are. It's how they're managed. It's how they led. That's how they're interacting. That's completely different. And you've got to change that. And your bottom line numbers will go up without anything else. Don't need training. Don't need anything else. And it's the same thing if you do it in any department, any part of any company. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. All right, Jason. So this conversation has probably got people thinking, yeah, I knew all that, but you've just reminded me of how important it is. You've just reminded me how often I forget how important personal relationships are at work. So the listeners sitting there thinking, all right, I'm going to be that change in my workplace, whether I'm the leader or I'm someone on the team, I'm going to make something happen so that we develop that psychological safety in our workplace because I just want to enjoy work better. What are some really tangible steps that we can take? So the first thing is the other piece of research that I found, and I created the game that people can download and use, and I'll give you some other ways that you can do this as well. But Professor Arthur Aaron. In 1997, he came out now a famous research study, and he was trying to figure out how to make best friends, like best friends, like snapping your finger that fast. Now, I know people are saying to themselves, how can that be? The best people and my best friends are the people that are closest in my life and I care about the most. That took 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Well, that's all a story. And I'm going to tell you and give you the evidence, and you can Google the study, and you can read it all, and it's all there in black and white. So he found 54 grad students. And again, this is 1997. This is pre-social media. 54 grad students that didn't know each other, had zero contact, and didn't even know any data about each other, any information. Put them in a room, had them play a game, a question and answer game. Now, these questions were very vulnerable. They asked 36 questions over 45 minutes. 
So they ask each other essentially 72 questions over 45 minutes. That's only like 40 seconds a question. So we're not getting that in, right? Yeah. Well, they measured them before and after. And at the end of just 45 minutes, 30% of the people with a complete stranger rated that relationship as the closest relationship in their life. <laughs> the closest relationship in their life. Right. And they've replicated it dozens of times over different geographies, races, I mean, anything you can figure out. And, and, and the funny thing too is one of the original pairs in the study got married and invited everyone from the experiment wedding, which okay. is also pretty funny. I was about to say that they might've rated that relationship as very strong immediately afterwards, but how would they feel in a week or a, or a month's time about this person who they spent one day with compared to the friends that they've had for, for 20 years? But I get the gist of it by by just having an intense time of sharing insight into yourself. And, I, and I, I've seen you speak, so I know the questions are things like, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? Because that just reveals something about yourself. It reveals something about your desires and, and how you'd like to see yourself and what your ambitions are. Questions like that. I, I understand that that's a, that's a powerful experience. Might not create lifelong best friends for everybody, but it's certainly a, a really quick way to, to bring people together. And you can imagine the value of doing that with your team. You know, you might not do it for that period of time and you might not hit them with, with 72 questions, but taking that the psychological theme of that and just giving your team an opportunity to to ask each other those type of quirky questions that reveal something about them as a person. It's a, a way to build trust. It's a way to be slightly vulnerable with each other. And it built in, in the original study too, 70% of the people contacted each other after the study and got together on their own. And they weren't even measuring for that. Yeah. So right. I find this stuff, I find this stuff actually really sticks with people because we don't ask people questions, right? So I'll give you an example. So I had back last August, one of my friends said to me, Well, Jason, this is all well and good, but you know, there are people on our executive team and people that have known each other for 10, 15 years. Like, what are they going to tell me that I probably don't know or have some idea about? So I gave these questions in my game, not the questions from Martha Aaron. And I gave them to five people who've been best friends for 20 years and really best friends and five people that were married for 20 plus years happily. I had them play it for 60 minutes. And at the end of it, all 10 basically said the same thing. They learned substantial things about their partner that, or friends that they did not know that they wish they'd known that would have positively would have enhanced their relationship. And they would have never asked those questions and ever found that information the rest of their lives. That's great. Right? The rest of their right? So, so that's not just people, strangers putting them in a room. This is people who know each other really yeah. well and getting them yeah. to ask those questions. That's great. You don't know people that way. And what we'll do is we'll put a link on the podcast page for this episode, Jason, to where they can find that information because I know you offer those questions to people so they can they can get those because that would be a fantastic experience. Awesome. All right. Now, we've only got a couple of minutes to go, Jason. So hit me with one or two more. I, I love those get to know you type activities. That's the the first point that you made. What else could I do? You know, if I'm in a workplace and I know we need to be closer, we need more psychological safety. So the other thing to do, and the Surgeon General of the United States actually did this and said it revolutionized staff meetings and said that it was the most, the thing that led to the most productivity as a team of anything he did. And I did this actually before I found this out. 
And I have people do this in groups where they bring at the start of the meeting, like, you know, once a month, and you can do it every week initially, bring a picture and tell people in 30 seconds up to a minute why that picture matters, who's in it and what's going on. And when you go around the circle, what you'll find, because this is everyone who's done this, I've given it said the same thing. People put down their cell phones. They don't type on their laptop. They stay engaged. The ROI in the meeting goes up. Better ideas come up. People are excited about going to the meeting. They miss the meeting almost never. And they push other meetings around. And you don't have people saying, well, I'm busy. I got to do this phone call. They just won't have it, right? So that's another thing to do. It's sharing. And I see the third thing you can do is something that I've had people do more recently, and it's worked exceptionally well. And this works well for if you're a manager, and actually if you're an employee with your manager, you could institute the same thing, is that you ask two questions. And you ask, the manager could ask this, or it could go either way. Rate our relationship on a scale of one to 10, and tell me why you're rating the relationship for those reasons, right? For that number. And what that does for wow, a person that's is confronting. It exactly right. But and initially it's pretty awkward. But what it does is it gets real, right? Because you don't know and you're guessing. And the problem is when we guess, that's the problem because it's there's ambiguity, right? There's not clarity. And whenever there's not clarity, there becomes problems. So what happens there is you understand it. And you can have a debate and you don't agree with it with the other person. And then you can really figure out what's going on and take positive steps, right? Let's say a manager asked that of someone that they're managing and the employee says, you know what? I really like to spend more time with you. You never spend any time with me. Well, what that manager can do is say, look, I can't spend that much time with you because of my schedule. But what I'll do is I'll block out another 30 minutes and let's try this for the next four weeks and see how it goes. Well, immediately the relationship's going to get better because the person is going to feel heard and you're going to know. And if you do this once a month, it's a performance review every time. And the it's, second question is, go ahead. No, no I was just going to say, it's, it's a simple question, but we would never do that, would we? Unless you, you explicitly make no this an activity. We, no one does that. You're right. Yeah. All right. What's the second I question? People, right. So I ask people at, you know, I've been in Amazon and Google. I mean, I ask all the people and I've ad, actually asked to ask other people. And the answer is zero. Yeah. And the second question is, you know, rate your work product essentially, right? And if you're a salesperson, right, and you're a manager, you'd, you'd ask the question, how would you rate your relationship with your customers and your work product, right? With your credibility, service you're providing, their engagement with the product, right? So whatever metrics you use, right? And yeah. then they're going to give a number on a scale of one to 10. And then you as a manager, right? have to do enough research to stay on top of it. And if the person says a 10, but it's really a four for you, you can say, well, you know what? I just can't agree with that number for these reasons. And now you're having a real conversation with them yeah. about what's going on and you can recalibrate, get them on board. And if they don't make progress over a few months, then you know there's a problem. And also if there's another pattern of other issues coming up, you're doing it. So when you ask these questions, you create a new conversation where you get real, you get authentic, you don't hide behind things, and you get much more clear. And what happens? Relationships get much better. And the they problem in corporate America, they become real, is that no one wants to give feedback anymore, right? Most of the organizations, people have learned that if I give you negative feedback, 
you are going to come after me and yeah. hurt my career. It's going to come back and, and bite that's what me. Happened. Yeah. So now no one gets feedback. Hey, Jason, we've run out of time, mate, but they are fantastic tips. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I've just loved your passion talking about this thing. We all know how important it is, but for some reason, we just continue to neglect it. These personal relationships at work. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Jason. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Hey, thanks for having me on. And that was Jason Choi. He's pretty passionate about workplace relationships and with good reason. Some of those numbers are scary. 70% of us disengage from our work. Most of us feel isolated, alone at work, and hardly any of us can cite a single person we share our thoughts, concerns, and triumphs with. As I mentioned during the chat, it's the great paradox of our time. The more connected we've become, the more alone we feel. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Jason on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website, teamswithans.guru slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Fuzel for Team Guru. Bye for now.